Welcome to episode five of the Brain Train Podcast. I'm your co-conductor, Seth. And I'm your co-conductor, Zach. And today, Zach, what are we talking about? We're going to talk about education. Education? Education. So, what has been your experience? We're just going to hop right in mm-hmm. with education. How? What was your sort of upbringing? What was your experience coming, uh, growing up and then getting into the workforce, all of that? Yeah. So, my experience, I was actually homeschooled through all the grades. And so, I really feel like my education... As, as far as number competency and you know learning learning technical things they, that was good I felt like I, I did well in that kind of environment but as far as socially I think it really started when I got my first part-time job at the springs yeah <laughs> in the kitchen and uh yeah started learning more about people and talking with them and disagreeing about things and interacting with the boss and yeah, I, th- I felt like that was really where my the education that I really cared about started. Um, and then after that, ended up going to Chick-fil-A, which was another, another job. And I felt like I learned a, a lot of things there. But the thing that I was most grateful for in that environment was just being able to have a bunch of guys in the kitchen that I could talk with about anything. And we would just bat around all sorts of ideas with a bunch of people that were super different from each other. And so then after that, I've actually continued. I'm taking classes online through Waldorf University right now, which has been pretty, pretty simple. But I am still doing that while I'm working full time. Since then, I've stopped working at Chick-fil-A. I started working at Interchange, which was a local warehouse shipping and logistics company. And I really enjoyed my time there and definitely learned a lot of things there. And then wanting to continue my education and, and job and career, I think that those are all very closely tied together, especially at the beginning of life. Uh, but I've ended up moving to a wealth management firm and I'm working there now and I'm enjoying all the things that I'm learning there because there is definitely a lot of opportunity to learn a lot of things there. And I am still working on my degree. But the interesting thing is I feel like I've learned a lot more from the jobs that I've worked in where I've gotten paid to learn as opposed to the education that I pay for where I submit a discussion board post once a week and I write some sort of paper once a week which I think that those are teaching me skills that I do want to learn but I think that it's also interesting right now because you look around and you can probably find a job where you have to do something very similar to write a discussion board post and write some sort of paper (laughs) yeah yeah for me education has been I was also homeschooled for the most part and then uh, kind of around high school, didn't quite go like public school, high school, but definitely was learning with other people, not just at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then similar to you, working at the Springs. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I I kind of learned a lot from that job about like just general like routine. Like this is this mm-hmm. is how you actually like function in a workplace with other people even if it was not a terribly high stakes Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh high risk job um yeah but i i agree with you it it teaches you a lot when you when you work a job versus when uh you're you're learning because you can see immediately kind of the value in what you're doing Mm -hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of things when i was uh learning like math 
for example, <laughs> where I went, I can't see myself needing to use this unless I'm doing a job I know I'm not going to do, mm-hmm. basically. Like, if I'm a scientist, if I'm studying a bunch of mathematical formulas and trying to solve equations of the universe, these mathematical concepts will be helpful. I don't need these mathematical concepts to run a cash register mm-hmm. or, or even really manage people's money. Most of, most of money management doesn't require algebra to solve, as far as I'm aware. Can confirm, it does not. <laughs> um, and, and algebra I still find valuable because it's a useful... It, it is useful. I don't use it all the time, but when it comes up, it's very relevant. Um, but like I've, I've always found that when I'm actually doing the thing, that's when I go, oh, this is why this is useful. Mm-hmm. The, this is why knowing how to do this is good. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I think one of the big barriers in education is that it's, all, it's hard to get people to kind of recognize the applicable parts of what you're teaching them mm-hmm. if it's not immediately obvious mm-hmm. uh, with things, especially like math was my thing, but that kind of pops up in a lot of things mm-hmm. of like, why do I need to know this? Yeah. I think that school courses... So if you look on a website like Udemy or any of those masterclass, yeah. uh, there are a lot of courses on there and YouTube as well. Lots of tutorials that say this course, this video, this tutorial will teach you, will show you how to complete this task, create this thing, make this game, whatever it is. And it's very, very results focused. Whereas school, it's like, well, you need this to get your credits. So I feel like they can be a little bit more lazy with it. And I feel like they are because, yeah, at the end of, and you know, for some of them, it's, it's understandable. If you're going into a high math degree because you want to teach it, yeah, you're going to have to take calculus for the sake of understanding it. And I'm sure that there are, I'm not well versed in the list of professions that you will actually need to use calculus in, but I think that a lot of the courses that are put forward in a lot of school settings could do a much better job of saying, hey, after you've completed this course, you will have a story with characters that you've created and that will be your product that you have. Or, or in math, you know, I, I did not enjoy math at all for the same reason, <laughs> but I think that you can still learn some very good skills in math. But what I wish looking back on in, in math was that there had been more results at the end of it. So instead of just saying, by the end of this, you will learn how to solve quadratic equations or you know, in chemistry, you will have a better understanding of how gravity works. But I, I, I kind of dragged my feet through those kinds of courses. But I was taking initiative during that time to look up videos on YouTube that were pretty, pretty high math kinds of videos that I did not fully understand. But <laughs> I was using them to program games in my computer because I could see the result immediately. And that was fascinating to me. And so if there was something that goes, yeah, this course is going to teach you math primarily and it's going to teach you about the real world you know how to calculate gravity and how to how to calculate all sorts of things but then you also get to 
program a game and that's your result at the end of it, I feel like that's so much more fascinating from a learning standpoint than just, well, at the end of this course, you will get three college credits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, um, math, like, for me, I was always like, okay, why am I learning this and not something literally everyone is going to have to do, taxes? Because mm-hmm. that's math. And it's not terribly easy math sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, if I don't put something incorrectly and I have to find X to figure out where that money went because I have to report it on my taxes, that's when I'm using algebra. Mm-hmm. Now, I keep track of my money, so that doesn't happen. But, like, um, with, with that sort of thing, if you implement that in a math course, the person can see, oh, this is the use case for the thing I'm learning, mm-hmm. and I can use it for other things, and people are smart enough to figure out they can use a thing for multiple things. Mm-hmm. But um, having that initial thing of, like, you're going to have to do taxes, and if you miss something, you can use algebra to figure out what that number was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for me, it's some sort of tax prep, I think, is immensely important, mm-hmm. because when I started actually having to pay taxes... Um, it was a complete wall of like, okay, what am I reading? How on earth does this work? Why am I being taxed on this? Uh, that was kind of my initial reaction. And it, it happens every year with new things every year. It's like, wait, why do I owe the government money for this? Uh, (laughs) why is the government paying me money for this? Yeah. Why am I getting paid for this? Uh, (laughs) which does not happen nearly as often. (laughs) No. But um, I think that a lot of schooling that I'm seeing doesn't really prepare you for the real-world application. Mm -hmm. It prepares you for the conceptual knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think that needs to change in some sense because I'm just seeing a lot more people who aren't prepared for the real-world reality of the things they've learned, Mm -hmm. but they understand them in concept. Mm -hmm. And that's really, really dangerous, especially with things like economics because if you understand economics in concept, but you have no idea and you haven't talked with a person before, mm-hmm. there's this weird trend of going like, oh, well, obviously everyone's going to follow this economic principle. And then you have somebody who's, I don't know, charitable and your whole economic theory falls apart because they <laughs> gave away money. Uh-huh. No one does that. <laughs> and so like, um, and obviously economics doesn't really have that specific problem most of the time, but like. If you're so familiar with the concept, I find so many people who are college educated who expect the people they meet to fit the concept they were taught instead of vice versa. Mm -hmm. And that is really, really dangerous Mm. because it's like taking a psych class and automatically thinking like, oh, well, I now know how everybody thinks and exactly what's wrong with people. Right. Or like taking a personality (laughs) quiz and going, ah, you must be an INTP. Yeah. I know exactly how those work. Exactly. Um, it, it's stuff like that where it's like people, at least to the point we understand the way people think, we have an idea of the trends people think in, but that does not really define any individual. Mm-hmm. And you can't fully model a person yet mm-hmm. in all of the various ways they interact. You can get a solid idea of what they might do, but like, we're, we're nowhere near mind control levels of understanding people Mm -hmm. we we have trends and we have things we can look at that are very valuable to know especially if you're a part of that trend um but uh, i see colleges 
taking that empirical approach to concepts and then teaching people like a concept is the empirical truth of a situation. Mm-hmm. And that messes all sorts of things up because as soon as you start relying on the truth of a concept and that isn't working, sort of like how you change one thing in a bit of code you made and the whole thing falls apart mm-hmm. because it's all interconnected, the, the same thing happens when you teach people that a, a concept is objective truth. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to... I don't know if pushback is the right word, but I want to dig into this idea a little bit more of training concepts because, and I do feel like in a lot of education, especially like high school, I, I wish that there was a better uh, training on things like taxes, things that you're actually going to have to, this is going to apply to your life in, in a very short amount of time instead of, you know, Sally has X many apples and <laughs> Billy took three of them and Lucy <laughs> is generous and gave you three, you know, instead of yeah. things like that, if it was more like, okay, this is how you do taxes. So I, I see, I see things like that, but I feel like a lot, I think, I think that a lot of things that we are taught in an educational environment are things that vary quite a bit for every person. So maybe... Uh, taxes are a good one that's just like everybody should learn that in the U.S. But I think that a lot of things that are being taught, like uh, many different people are going to find the many different ways that they could use math, the result of that are going to find very different things interesting to them. And many different people are going to require training specifically in different areas that not everyone can be trained in. So I I think that by nature, education tends to rely on those concepts in order to more generally educate people. And so how how do you suggest that um, uh, the the modern education world confront uh, treating these concepts like truth and actually starts training things that people will use while allowing room for variance in every different person yeah so that's and there's a lot of things involved in that one of the unique advantages that the education system kind of has right now is that you get to know the person from when they're like four Mm -hmm. or five to when they're like 17 to 18 Mm -hmm. that that's the public school system and then from 18 to 22 into college but the teachers do change. The teachers change a ton. So what I would recommend in a school, like a schooling sense, like an organized education sense, is, and companies do this to understand their customers, you create a behavioral model that trends with their interest, just mm-hmm. like companies do to track your interest and advertise to you, um, that you can give to many teachers. And if you're teaching teachers how to teach, you want to give them some sort of course in literacy and however you format that model. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, however however is easy for them to digest and understand, these are the types of people that I have. This is the way I can structure my class to get all of them. Um, that, is, that is what I would want education majors to focus on kind of more than the topics that they're teaching is how to include the people that they're teaching with their various interests and skills so that you can take this mm-hmm. concept and i i think concept learning is really really good for teachers mm-hmm. because if you you need to understand the concept well to teach it in many ways 
-hmm. You don't need to understand the concept well to do it in many different ways. Um, Because if you're taking trig and applying it to a video game and applying it to uh, astronomy, you're going to use the same principles. Mm -hmm. So as long as you know the principles, you're fine. But if you don't understand the higher concepts of how, how it works... You aren't going to be able to teach it well to somebody else if your only experience is in astronomy or in video games. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for educators, it's more important to understand the conceptual level of things. But I think there needs to be some sort of way of modeling the interests of students when they're young and how that grows and develops because it'll probably change. Mm-hmm. Um, so that teachers kind of have an in on the loop of like, this is where the interests are trending towards. And you can eventually, maybe at the beginning of high school, middle of high school, adapt the classes you're teaching them to specialize that person in their interests. That is what I'd want to see from an education system, is it, it, brings, it, it helps you bring up your interests mm-hmm. so that you can solidify, these are the things I like, these are the things I don't like, this is what I'd want to do for a job. And that would be, or, or this is the type of company I'd want to run, whatever. Mm-hmm. That would be me seeing creating an education system that equips people to do something in the world because they know what they want to do because the focus has been, well, here are the things you can do. What, what, what do you enjoy doing? And you can change your mind a lot throughout Mm -hmm. that basically 20 years of figuring out how the world works. Um, but there's immense danger in modeling and psychoanalyzing all of your students um, especially with an algorithm, because that's probably how you'd have to do it to transfer. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was about to, I was about to say to to play devil's advocate. Would uh, would a model like this be potentially uh, looking at the students and categorizing them in the same way we just talked about? <laughs> it could, especially if you're just if you're having educators put it together. Mm-hmm. You need the model to be honest, basically. You need the model to prioritize the interest of the student over the interest of the state or the education program. So do you think that the uh, results of the model would be driven primarily by the observations of the teacher or the input of the students? Input of the students. Because Mm -hmm. most of the tests are done online anyway. You can just grab those results and feed it through the algorithm while it's being graded by the actual teacher. Then what, what prevents this from being like a... Uh, using a career test or like a Myers-Briggs personality test to gauge the thing, gauge your interest in different areas? Um, the, the biggest difference is between just taking like an MBTI test or just taking a career test because you do that like once or twice in high school maybe. Um, I, I did mine in college, so like um, it, it varies. But um, you have so much more data over time. Mm-hmm. You, you can track, okay, I was interested in trucks when I was four, and I'm still kind of interested in trucks now that I'm 18, but it's a much more, it's not fire trucks anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not the big boxy, like, I want like a Toyota Tacoma, mm-hmm. uh, something like that. Um, you, you can track that interest and see how it's grown with you, and you can go, oh, I was really interested in trucks when I was four, and now I don't really care. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, what I would want this... If, if I was in charge of it, I would want it to be a student tool 
that the teachers have access to, not a teacher tool that the students have access to, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I would want the students to be tracking it themselves if they're interested. Mm-hmm. To go like, oh, interesting. Treat it similar to a transcript. Mm-hmm. Having that sort of development model um, that you can share with teachers and then you have the transcript alongside of it. Because then you have so much more understanding of, okay, this is where this student has come through. And if you see many, many changes, you can know even more. Um, like, oh, they were interested in that, then they got interested in this, then they got interested in that. You have that, and you can check and see, okay, did grades fluctuate within that on their transcript? Hmm. And that would be the teacher side of things. But I think we have the tools to do that, and I think if we can help teachers understand how to apply that information, we can get a much more tailored education system because the teachers are able to be equipped with deeper knowledge of the people that they're teaching. Now, this hinges on a very important thing. As a teacher, you have to care Mm -hmm. about the people you're teaching. And one of the big flaws that I have come across over and over and over and over again is tenure. Mm -hmm. Tenured teachers do not care. Because there are no consequences for not caring that's, that's, anymore. That's kind of that's kind of broad. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really really broad. But I'm talking about incentives. A teacher wants to keep their job because mm-hmm. they probably somewhat enjoy it. If you tenure a teacher, and I understand why tenure exists, it's important. I don't want to just say abolish tenure. What I'm saying is tenure needs to shift in focus because the outcome of tenuring a older professor, like in a college, is that generally, because they have that job security, they're not going to put as much effort into the class that they've been teaching for the last 40 years, because they're not at as high a risk if they do poorly at teaching the class. Hmm. That's just like general human laziness. Okay, I don't have to put as much effort in because I don't have, as, I don't have consequences for not. Um, whereas when you're growing up and having to prove yourself as a professor, you do have to put a lot of effort into that so that the college knows this one's good at Mm -hmm. their job. But once you get over that hump and you get tenure or you get whatever, you, you kind of done the goal. Mm -hmm. And so I think, well, we should keep tenure and job security is very, very good and important. And I want, I want professors to be able to teach where they know that they'll be able to focus on the teaching and not the money. Um, I think that the current way tenure works tends to incentivize people to care less. Now, how do you prevent... So so I'm thinking about this, and this sounds good to change, you know, the. I think that the result of something like tenure should be to make a professor more bold in potentially uh, their educational methods that they really believe are, are the best for the students. Um now, I, that that's a relatively new thought to me. So I, I've not tested that out a bunch. Um, so allow me a little bit of room for error there. But I also, I also think, okay, yes, teachers caring more, professors caring more about their students, that's a great thing. But how, how would a model like this change that? Are we, are, are we potentially shooting for something that is unrealistic because it's or is it aiming for a result or is it aiming for a change in the process 
Yeah. So with with the way I'm thinking about this, and it's, it's got its own problems, but um, it, it is looking at the incentive structure of teachers. What what do we give teachers to work with, and what do we expect them to do, mm-hmm. and what tools do we give them to do it? That's the incentive structure. Currently, the incentive structure kind of incentivizes stick to the mold as much as possible until you have job security, and then just stop. That That's kind of the outcome of the system we have. And um, while teachers are all individuals, and you can have some amazing teachers who just love teaching mm-hmm. people and seeing them grow up, you don't need an incentive system mm-hmm. to get those teachers to do that. It's just a little bonus for them. So, so okay, for the, the, the bad teachers <laughs> that people have had, how do you think that this would really, do you think that, anything really could be effective in helping to change the mindset or the motivation or the results of a teacher who really just does not give a crap about their students. So you can't change the person. Mm -hmm. What you can do is identify the problem. What you want in an incentive structure is you want it to create a pipeline of people who want to participate in it Mm -hmm. because people who don't care are still not going to care. Mm -hmm. What you want your incentive structure to do is weed out the people who aren't going to care. And so then what that should create, if structured properly, and that's where we get into a whole, how do you structure (laughs) this properly? I'm talking still conceptually, is you want the structure that weeds out the teachers who don't care so that the teachers you end up with are the teachers who care. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you want to basically create an incentive structure that nurtures the behaviors you want the teachers to exhibit to their students. And you want to reward those behaviors. Um, and there's many, many ways to do that. Uh, the more statistics you can latch onto in terms of educational efficacy, the better. Because grading works, but teachers are, teachers are graded on the grades of their students. Hmm. Which works to an extent, but teachers aren't always the people making the tests the students are taking. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a very poorly made test, the statistics bear out. And if that test just is badly made and the questions are really confusing and none of the students can get it and the teacher didn't make the test, what you're getting statistics on is actually the educational efficacy of that test, not that teacher. Because... Mm -hmm. I can understand trig, but if you frame a question in such a weird way that I can't grasp the numbers you want me to be applying with trig, I still can't answer your question. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's important that you make sure that you're getting the accurate data for the thing you're thinking you're getting. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the flaws with just having the one number per class. Mm-hmm. which is why I'd want a more in-depth student educational model because the more we can understand the breadth of knowledge of somebody, I think the better we can grade uh, grade that person to how much information they've retained because we can understand that individual better. I think... So I think that looking at teachers is interesting, but I think that also it's it would be important to look at the students because I mean we've all had good teachers and we've all had bad teachers and I'm sure that all teachers have had good students and they've had bad students mm-hmm. 
but I wonder if part of this solution is is large. I wonder if a lot of it really lies in the mindset of the student, because in life you're going to have bosses, you're going to have people that you interact with that do care about you and are great and are interactive with you, and you're going to have people that don't care as much, and and they function in different ways. But I think that you can learn things from both of them. You you can learn from your friends and you can learn from your enemies mm-hmm. and, and not saying that a bad teacher is an enemy, but I think that ideally a, a good student should have a mindset to where they are learning things from good teachers as well as bad teachers, because I don't think that there is like a long-term fix that could just across the board make all teachers better or, or get rid of the bad teachers that don't care as much. Yeah. And, and I don't think that there is something either that would make every student a good student. But I do think that there is a mindset that is available to every student that if they choose to take it could help them learn that they could help them learn well from every kind of teacher. Yes. So going, this links into, again, incentive structures. What is the behavior you incentivize with the public school uh, system? Mm -hmm. Because there really isn't much intentionality behind how people are taught. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more intentionality around what. Mm. And so not only does do school structures, they've started to now with recognizing like special needs Mm -hmm. uh, education. But that used to di- that didn't used to exist, and I think that's very important. But the process that the student experiences versus what the teacher experiences is very different, mm-hmm. and you you kind of have to know okay, what kids obviously don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. We need to get them to know things they don't know. How do we get the kids to want to know things they don't know? Mm-hmm. Because I've I met like three and four year olds who are super inquisitive mm-hmm. and those ones are the easy ones to kind of teach about things because they want to know. But I've also met three and four year olds who are inquisitive about nothing important and they aren't interested in anything important. They're just interested in how can I get more Legos or whatever, <laughs> like what, what gets me that thing I like. Mm-hmm. And as long as you know the interest, you can find a way to link that interest to something important. That's why I want a a student model that gets you to know those interests so you can tie those interests into mm-hmm. what they want to know. All right, I see where you're going now. So so this is as opposed to the student model that is available, uh, a, a student mindset that's available to them that makes them a good student. This is a teacher tool that is available to every teacher that could help them become a better teacher. Yes, that's mm-hmm. that model. Now... So, so we want to give teachers the information to know what their students like mm-hmm. so that if the teachers are asking questions, they can ask relevant questions and they can frame them within the knowledge they need to know. So if you have somebody who is, I don't know, a farmer, um, it's, it, it's going to resonate with them more if the questions you're giving them on their test are about farm things because that's the frame of reference they know. So... As an example, you have, I don't know, 30,000 tons of wheat that you're harvesting from your field. You need to, you have, I don't know, two, two, um, two harvesters both send out about 10 tons every 10 minutes. 
so you can get the numbers out there, mm-hmm. and then you're solving the same problems. You're going like divided by two, divided by three, whatever level of math you're at. Um, multiply by two and then divided by three, whatever whatever you want mm-hmm. to get them to do. You just frame it in the world that they know. Mm-hmm. But most teachers don't really know the world that they know, and I don't need I don't need the teacher to have been a farmer. Mm-hmm. I need the teacher to know here are the relevant things to farming. Here's how you can frame a question within the relevant things to farming. And that's what I would want some sort of artificial statistized algorithm to highlight. Is just like, here are the things to look into on how to ask these questions effectively. Because that question to that kid farmer Mm -hmm. is a lot more gripping of a question than Sally has six apples. Yeah. Because everybody's getting Sally has six apples. And there's also a point of individuality of it feels so much more special to know my teacher wanted to sit down and ask me this, the same numbers in every question. Mm-hmm. We're all solving the same math problem. But they went and went, you're going to understand this question better. And I'm going to put the, the words in this context for you so that you can get this to the best of your ability. Now, kids aren't going to probably make that big connection right away. But I think you can foster that teacher-student relationship passively through the, the ease of access to specializing questions to the children they're being asked mm. to. So maybe get them set up with chat GPT. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be a bad idea necessarily. It could go wrong, but like, mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't be the worst. The, the thing I want to equip teachers with is the ability to understand their students quickly and teach to that student individually without having to take 17 hours out of their day or their week to sit down and figure out for this one kid, how do I ask them good questions? How do I teach them well? Mm-hmm. I want them to have that data easily accessible so that they can go, okay, these are the margins I have. This is the way I can ask this. Oh, this group is grouped together, so I might be able to use the same questions here. And it can it can be for a group of 18 to 20 kids, which is like your average um, public school student size. It could be like a 30-minute process for that teacher to go, here are my demographics. Here's the way I can ask things that will resonate with most people. And then they can just maybe write two questions that are the same numbers but different framing to handle in on those. And what I would want an education major to focus in on is here are the concepts you need to know to teach the thing you're teaching, and here's how to understand the statistics we're giving you to quickly get these questions out of the way so you can get back to teaching. Because that gives you it gives you so much more tools that are tailored that can be tailored to your students. And so I'd want that literacy in teachers. On the student side, you need to have a, a an incentive structure that incentivizes learning. Mm-hmm. So what we have is a punishment structure. If you don't do well in your grades, bad things happen. Mm-hmm. There's no reward necessarily for doing well except for the satisfaction of not being punished. Mm-hmm. And that isn't terribly motivating to some mm-hmm. people. So there needs to be a reward structure for doing better, and you can... Keep that with a structure that keeps people, um, that punishes people for doing poorly. But th- you never hear, congratulations, you got good grades, this means X. You always hear, you got bad grades, this means X. Mm-hmm. Um, because if someone's getting straight A's, your parents and your teachers aren't worried that you're not going to have good success in college. Mm-hmm. If you're getting B's and C's, 
people start getting more worried because generally you drop a letter grade as soon as you get into college, um, that you're getting seasoned Fs as soon as you get into college. Mm-hmm. Um, so like children are going to understand that concern and they're not going to really care when they're eight that, oh, I got a C in my math test. This means I'm not going to be able to go to college in the next 10 years. <laughs> children don't think that far ahead. So you want to, you want a structure that goes like, here's a reward for doing well and either withholding the reward if you don't do well or keeping, retaining that punishment structure, kind of socially enforced punishment structure for bad grades. Mm-hmm. But there needs to be something beyond what we give students right now to show them it is good to succeed and do well at things. And there's a reason why you should do something that isn't just because bad things will happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to bring it back toward the beginning of our conversation and comparing kind of jobs and the educational world, I think that that is something that was a little bit of an adjustment in a good way when starting to work at an actual job, maybe maybe past the first one, <laughs> that was like, okay, if I do well here, I have the potential to get promoted or to get a raise. And maybe maybe if I conduct myself well socially, then I'll get invited to some extra friend group things because of this. And so I think that I think that those things are the okay, you got an A and so you are rewarded in this, this, th- in this way. And there there are some people who I, I knew a couple, <laughs> I knew a few yeah. who in school were just so motivated to excel in their studies. And that was so not me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when when moving into the workforce and then seeing, you know, the your typical businessman kind of person, you know, the, the company man kind of guy, it's like, man, what? why are they so motivated? But it's like, you know what? Now I, I get it a little bit. Like, <laughs> there's money that's on the table. There's structure. There's learning opportunities. You can make yourself better. You can become a better leader. And so I think that in when you actually begin a real job, the rewards do become a lot more tangible and a lot more motivating for some people. Not everyone, but I think that some people are quite motivated by those those kinds of reward structures that I think could could benefit. I think that I think that our current educational model could benefit from the rewards that you do experience at a typical job. Yeah. And now I wouldn't go paying students right, right, for yeah. good grades. <laughs> no, not um, But is some sort of surrogate system of reward, either that being, um, I don't know, you could even, if you have a good data model, you can tailor the reward to the student as well mm-hmm. based on their interests. So they could, I don't know. It, good, it, just to say, good teachers probably already do this. Oh, yeah. Again, this is all equipping teachers to do it faster and better. Mm-hmm. If they're already doing it, great. Here's a tool to help you get that model together a little bit better and a little bit faster and a little bit more accurately. For the teachers who care less, it's more work. Great. Um, like, But again, if at least if they're forced to do it, you're getting an overall better education to the kid from a teacher that still doesn't care. So it's still somewhat of an improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, so like th- the downside to me is the staticizing of your students mm-hmm. in a, on, a, on a computer because that's dangerous information. 
And so mm-hmm. for me, I don't necessarily know if I want our government in charge <laughs> of that. I would much prefer a private school implement this than a public school just because I don't really trust the political arm of the education system to not try and corrupt that and turn the students into a particular type of voting base based mm-hmm. on who's in power. Because they already try to do that, and I don't <laughs> want to give them more tools to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that also comes from the disposition of teachers. Um, but like, yeah, I, I also think that education is just such a core thing that people need mm-hmm. t- in some sense. But I think it gets overemphasized in a lot of places mm-hmm. because people think that because someone else hasn't taught you something, that means you can't know it. Right. And I don't know about you. I have been able to see the world and observe things for myself that I have then been taught in a class, and it was a waste of time. Mm. Um, and so I think it's important to recognize that your student, if they're an inquisitive person, knows something about something that they're not being taught mm-hmm. by an official teacher. At the same time, though, I think I think the more that I've learned and experienced, the more I'm convinced that there is not such a thing as a waste of time. Like the, the class where you learn kind of the redundant things, maybe it's not the most efficient way to learn something that's actually on your goal list. But I think that if you look close enough, you can learn some things, maybe even if it's not about the subject that you're learning, but about the people who are teaching it, about yourself when in situations that you feel like you've been in before, and then just how to conduct yourself well. Because, yeah, at at the end of the day, like, you know, you've got one life to live, and so... Yeah. Every at every opportunity, I think there's always a way to maximize that. But at the same time, yes, I also do think that the, the education system could be served with maybe eliminating some of the redundancy. I know that even I experienced this when with, with being homeschooled in some of the curriculums that we would use. And, well, the beginning of the curriculum, especially in grammar, looking back in, at, at the courses that I took in that, grammar and English, every single year it was the exact same thing that we learned every single year and I was like I could have done sixth grade and second grade like (laughs) if they're going to teach me this beginning stuff anyway like come on yeah but again there there's another cultural factor to learning which is that compulsory learning is never as effective as desired or pursued learning Mm -hmm. and that's the core I think the core kind of disconnect with the public school system mm-hmm. is it is more of a daycare type system than a dedicated educational system like you would get at a private school mm-hmm. or like a website like Udemy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> As we were talking about earlier. Yeah, if you're paying for a course, you have a different mindset and learning the material of that course mm-hmm. than if it's free and someone is saying you have to do this mm-hmm. and you have to know it well. Mm-hmm. There there's a lot less of a uh, desire behind it uh, and that's true for a lot of kids a lot of kids initially going to school are like why do I want to sit in a room and listen to this guy say that one plus one equals two I don't really care about that mm-hmm. my parents can figure that out <laughs> I like can I have that truck over there like can I just drive around on the floor I like that um, That that's kind of the thing where if the kid doesn't care which is basically the whole system 
like kids can care, but um, if you're having a compulsory system where it's like you're doing this because you have to, mm-hmm. you're automatically going to have a major problem with interest, mm-hmm. especially in a generalized educational setting. Mm-hmm. And there are ways to circumvent that, but all of those ways are relational. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't care about the thing, if I care about the person, I'll probably still interact with the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's the major barrier to invo- involuntary education that makes it a lot harder as an educator and as a student to actually succeed in. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the the other thing is you can get away with teaching harder things to students who want to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see that going back to before there was a public education system, the second grade curriculum for like in the 1800s, way above second grade now. Mm-hmm. Just because it's like you're here to learn and you're choosing to be here to learn. So we expect... It's like that more of a privilege. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We expect that you're actually going to try and learn this, whereas we don't have that reliable effort from a public school system. And I think that culture has leaked into most other school systems now as well, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know how to remedy that problem exactly because you're going to have parents who grew up in that now who are going, this is what school is. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how you break that cycle yet. Mm-hmm. We can figure that out maybe at some point. Mm-hmm. But at least equipping teachers to be a bit more personalized and develop those relationships with students in a better way because there are some phenomenal teachers who do that. And mm-hmm. I, I respect them for doing that to a new group of people almost every year. That's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to give them the tools to do that better. And I want to give the students the tools to desire, to, to spark that desire despite the sort of more involuntary circumstance. Mm-hmm. That, that is the way I can see kind of working around it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a good conversation about education. Yeah. Kind of. I, I kind of like... Like, I don't know if any of, any of the ideas are, like, good, <laughs> but I think it's a worthwhile thing to think through, even mm-hmm. as, like, a student coming out, recently coming out of, like, the educational setting, just going, like, how was I taught? <laughs> yeah. And what would I, if I was teaching me, what would I do? What would, what worked and what didn't? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if any of our ideas are good either, because it's like, hope you've enjoyed listening to homeschooled guys talk about the (laughs) public school system (laughs) (laughs) but you know i I think that there's still the the desire to learn and i think that a lot of people learn in similar everybody learns in a different way but everybody has some sort of experience with learning and so i think that there is commonality in those and especially after getting out of high school i think that learning and and desire toward learning tends to become more standardized um, with people who do desire it. And so, yeah, I, I was also interested in just pondering through some of the, the, the things that potentially colleges could do as well. And then what it looks like when you actually start to learn things in the workforce too. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you very much for listening. I have been your co-conductor, Zach. And I've been your co-conductor, Seth. Peace. Peace.